Thanks for joining us here on Service to School Stories. Your hosts for this season are Alec Emmert, Service to School CEO and Navy veteran. And Sydney Mathis, Chief Program Officer and former College Admissions Officer. This season will cover topics as it relates to higher education, military service transition, and career opportunities and outcomes for veterans. Join us as we share student stories, inside tips from the admissions office, and conversations with employers actively hiring student veterans. Here we go. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Service to School podcast. Uh, Today, we have Alex Walsh on. Uh, He was a fire control technician first class in the U.S. Navy. Um, Fire control technicians maintain and operate the ship's weapon systems, and he was a specialist in its five-inch guns. He was stationed in Rota, Spain on a guided missile destroyer. After his service, he went on to Harvard University, where he studied government um, with a focus in policy and uh, local economics. He's currently working at AmeriCorps in Traverse City, Michigan, where he is a college completion coach, where his main focus is uh, student success. Um, So I'd like to take a second and and get a little bit more about you, Alex. So could you tell me about yourself, uh, where you grew up, and uh, what drove you to join the Navy? Yeah, well, it's really nice to be on on this uh, podcast with you. I've heard some of the uh, the previous uh, veterans talking about their experiences. Um, so, uh, for those of you, my name is Alex Walsh. I was born and raised in Traverse City, Michigan. I went to a uh, high school here, um, Traverse City Central, and I was part of their Symantec program. It's like an honor STEM program that gears students for like pre med and engineering, and computer science. But um, like I say, as a senior, um, I had some difficulty obtaining like necessary uh, student loans to go to university right away, and so I decided to. Um, to attend my local community college, Northwestern Michigan College. And um, at the time I had started writing a, uh, a book, I was kind of interested in getting creative writing. So I changed my my study of um, and, and pursued um, English and, and creative writing and, and political science. And so that's kind of how I started. I got I was very involved on campus. I was like um, an officer for like six clubs and organizations, including the college newspaper and student government. And um, got my associate degree in 2012. And applied to a couple of universities for transfer, and I was admitted to both schools. But I ran into the same financial obstacle. My parents were unable to co-sign for student loans, and I just could not get the student loans without a co-signer. And so I looked for different ways to uh, get around that that hurdle. And so I joined the Navy, um, and I figured that if I'm going to join the Navy, I might as well go for the full experience. And so I joined active duty and um, did six years. Um, I entered in as the advanced electronics and computers field, and then at the end of boot camp. They send you off to um, your A school, and that's how I found out I was going to become a fire controlman. And so I went through that. Got you. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what a fire controlman does? Yeah. So there are two main types of fire controlmen. So you have Aegis, which kind of works more on um, it's, it's a different kind of weapon systems with like missiles and radar systems. And then I'm more of a conventional type. So we work more with like um, more mechanical type gun weapon systems. And so I, um, so we operate and maintain weapon systems aboard uh, a variety of different kind of uh, Navy warships. So I was aboard a USS Kearney guided missile destroyer, and um, I specialize in the the five-inch gun weapon system on the forecastle. And um, but my division was in charge of all the all the gun systems on the ship, so like SeaWiz and and now the like the fitticals around the perimeter of the ship and all the guns really, which is pretty fun because uh, before I even joined the Navy, I had never touched a gun before in my life. Wow, very cool. And um, your your ship was based in Europe. Was that a was that a choice of yours? Did you want to go to Europe? Um, and um, if so, what what drove that decision? And then what was your experience like over there? Yeah, so um, that, that's actually really cool. 
um, time. And so what I didn't know at the time when I was going through the Navy, going through A school, was that depending on how you perform in your class, you could choose your orders, where you're going to go next. And um, so um, so I, I just did the best I could so I can try and um, aim for like the, to be at the top of my class so I can choose whatever kind of orders I wanted. And I, I heard rumors that, there, um, that the Navy was going to send four destroyers over to Spain. And so I just did my research ahead of time to the names of the four destroyers. And so that way I can keep an eye out for orders going to any of those ships. And I saw orders going to uh, USS Kearney. It was currently stationed in, in uh, Mayport, Florida. And so um, I was, but I knew that that ship was going to go to Spain. So that's where I really, where I really wanted to go. Got you. Had you traveled much before? What, what drove your decision to want to go to Europe? Um, so I've always wanted to go visit Europe. Um, just kind of growing up. I took classes on European history, world history. But also my family has ties to Europe as well. My, uh, my great-grandparents immigrated to the U.S. From, from Italy, from Sicily, from Hungary, and then um, England, and some, I think we also have some Irish family as well. But um, yeah, so my great-grandparents came over from Sicily, so I've always wanted to go visit Sicily, and I was just really obsessed with Irish culture when I was younger, so I really want to go to Ireland as well. And, um, but growing up, I, I never really traveled much. Um, I never really made it outside the state of Michigan um, except for a couple of times, I visited my brother before he deployed to Iraq um, for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then um, I also went down to Florida for like a journalism conference when I was part of the college newspaper. But that's pretty much it. Um, oh, vacations wow. for my family growing up was visiting family down in Detroit. Oh, that's cool. So what was the, uh, so there must have been some culture shock then. What did it feel like when you first got to Spain? Yeah, so very different culture. I feel like they, they kind of operate on, on the time shifts. And so because they eat lunch very late in the afternoon and I don't think dinner's until around like 10, maybe 11 p.m. at night. So that took some adjustment. And I kind of felt like during the summer, like the sun wouldn't set till like 11. And, and so like really late evenings and it's a different, different type of environment. People are very friendly. Um, we, uh, outside of Rota, most of the uh, the people living in like some towns like uh, Perez de, uh, de la Frontera, they, they would speak Spanish, only Spanish. And so um, thankfully I spoke Spanish. <laughs> and so I was able to make some friends and I was able to... Um, yeah, make make friends with some locals who were able to teach me a lot about the local culture and I learned a lot. Yeah, that was actually gonna be my next question is uh did you did you know Spanish before you got there? And so how long did it take you to learn it? So I take it you must have taken some high school Spanish then. Yeah, so um I took four years high school Spanish. But one of my best friends growing up is from Oaxaca, from Oaxaca, Mexico. And so his his uncle owned a local Mexican restaurant here and I would go there and practice my Spanish. So I was able to retain a lot of that. And um Ever at NMC, I was part of the International Students Club, and we had some Spanish speakers who were members, and I would practice my Spanish with them, and so I was able to retain a lot of that Spanish. So when I went to Spain, I was able to build upon that, become a little bit more fluent. So I'm not exactly sure where I stand with my proficiency, but I'm definitely proficient enough to hold my own. Yeah, and in in Rota, was it was English widely spoken, or was it through the people there only really speak Spanish? You had to speak Spanish to survive. Um. It's kind of mixed, so it kind of depends on where you went and wrote it. Um, there's a pretty strong American presence there now, especially with it, with its ships being stationed over there. So I found like a lot of the locals in Rota at least spoke, um, spoke Spanish and English. But um, once you kind of got out of there, and I would drive to like Jerez de la Frontera, and like, like no one would really speak English over there. It was really just like Rota and then major Spanish, um, major Spanish cities like Seville and Madrid and Barcelona. So, so you benefited from from some of that that total immersion. And I had a similar experience. Uh, I was did some time in Naples, Italy, and no one there really speaks English. So, 
it, you really have to pick a battalion pretty quickly in it. I felt like I benefited because you're just in that total immersion environment where if you don't speak it every day, um, you, you don't get to you don't get to eat right. You, you can't order a meal at a restaurant or anything like that. So definitely, that's like one of the, uh, the best parts of my military experience. It sounds like it was yours as well. Was getting to live overseas and, and learning about a new language and, and culture. So wanted to also hear about some of your travels. So um, we, we talked ahead of the podcast. You mentioned you, you, you're fairly well traveled throughout Europe and the Middle East. And I'd like to get some of those stories. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved being able to travel around. Um, I just experienced just so much. I think I need to double check my, my exact count, but I think I've been to 27 different countries. And um, that, that kind of includes if you break up UK into different countries. Um, <laughs> so like Scotland, I, I, um, Northern Ireland, and then you also have uh, yeah, England, Wales. I never made it to Wales, though, but I did go to Gibraltar. Oh, cool. So which, Sean, uh, were some of the best experiences you had in those those countries? Do you have a favorite favorite overseas experience or a few you'd like to share? Yeah, I think one of my favorite moments was when I was finally able to go visit the Republic of Ireland for the first time. Um, I ended up going there four times, um, none of them for deployments. I just would go take my own personal leave and just head over there. But growing up, I was just really into Irish culture and I was really into like listening to music. And, and so when I went there, I, um, I didn't really go there with any plans. And so I just, I kind of based myself in Dublin and my, my plan was to travel around and take photos. And so I signed up for a whole bunch of tours, went all around Ireland and, Took photos of like maybe 400 photos from that time. Wow. So what were your uh, what were your favorite things you photographed while you were over there? So was that was photography always an interest of yours? Is that a newfound passion when you were overseas? Um, it's, it's always been a passion of mine. I just never really had the money to travel growing up. So I was able to like really like um, get into like landscape photography with my travels and and just kind of learn about some of the historical sites and talking to meet people and just learning so much. Um, I, I really enjoyed landscape photography and like just like the beauty of just nature and the mountains everywhere I would go. And Ireland's just a very beautiful, very beautiful place. But I mean, so is much of Europe. <laughs> like almost everywhere you go is just so beautiful. So I, I got to ask you, so do you have a, like a real big camera, like one of those Canons, or do you just do everything on your, uh, on your iPhone? So um, I had a Nikon D5200. So it was like a, like an amateur starter type of a DSLR. And so I'd travel around and take photos using that. I dig into um, using my camera phone as well. Like I have a Google Pixel and it has a really good camera. And so I started doing that too because it was just kind of bulky carrying the camera around sometimes. And then um, then I, there's a, toward the end of my time in the Navy, I got into this thing. I, I think we called it like a lens ball. It's like a glass marble. And if you focused on the, like the marble, it would take the image that's behind and flip it. And wow. so I have like a really cool photo of like the Egyptian pyramids where it's like the pyramids is upside down in the marble. It's kind oh, of cool. Wow. That's that's pretty cool. So switching uh switching gears a little bit, did any of those those travels further your academic interests um for when you for when you left the Navy and decided to go to college? Yeah, and I would say just seeing like um international trade and like how like different businesses just in different countries kind of operated and see how well just everything's just so interconnected. Um, really got me interested in like um, it just kind of strengthened my my passion for international relations, but also like looking to economics and and business and um, but at the same time I also um, witnessed a lot of just hardships faced by a lot of people around the Mediterranean. Um, a lot of people coming from like poor backgrounds and seeing some refugees. At one point, my my ship was actually part of a rescue mission where we rescued 97 uh, Libyan refugees 
And um, that was back in, I'd say like the tail end of July, 2016. I think that's wow. what that was. But like, um, yeah, so it's just like witnessing a lot of stuff like that kind of changed my perspective. And so coming back to uh, to the US, I wanted to pursue international relations, but also like economics and business because I felt like I could have a stronger impact on communities if I were to pursue business and economics. And so um, at the time, I didn't quite know it, but like, I, I guess I really wanted to look into international development. Oh, cool. Yeah, and then so just uh, shifting gears to, to talk about your decision to attend Harvard. Um, so when did you decide you wanted to get out of the Navy? How soon did you start thinking about applying to Harvard? What were your What were your thoughts there? Yeah, so um, I guess I was kind of planning on getting out of the Navy before I, I even joined. I just uh, <laughs> wanted a, a way to help help me pay for school. And <laughs> but I mean, I had a, a lot of great experiences, made a lot of great friends. Got to travel finally too. Um, but um, so originally, I definitely was not anticipating getting to. A school like Harvard, I wasn't realistically looking at maybe Michigan State, University of Michigan, um, Calvin College, or, or I think it's called Calvin University now, in Greater Rapids, yeah. Michigan. And um, yeah, so I, um, because I, I couldn't get student loans by myself, I wanted to look for ways and ways I can pay and get like scholarships as well. So I retook the SAT and I actually scored much higher than I anticipated. Um, and I think, I think I scored like the 92nd percentile. Uh, it, was, it was pretty good for having been, been out of school for a while. And um, and then, I mean, that opened up a lot more doors. And so I thought maybe I'd play to a couple of reach schools just to see what happens. And I was looking at the uh, looking at Princeton's website, actually, because they had just announced that they're going to start taking transfer students. And so when I was going to be applying was would have been like their second second year accepting transfer students. And so I was looking at their website and then I saw that they were partnering with Services School. And so clicked on clicked on that, learned about Services School, thought I'd reach out, see um if if my academic background would interest them at all. And I mean it did. And they paired me up with a really awesome ambassador. And um yeah, his um yeah, I'll say his name. His name is Brady. Awesome guy. He's uh I think he still serves in the military. He uh, he was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot, uh, went to West Point, and then he went on to uh get his master's from Cambridge. It's just really impressive background. Very, very kind, very generous. Uh, you helped me a lot. Um, provided me a lot of great insight and advice, and helped me a lot as far as like crafting my personal statement. And and um, yeah, and so he he actually encouraged me to apply to Harvard, and and so I did. And and I definitely did not anticipate um, getting into any any top schools or anything. I just put my my best foot forward, hope for the best. Just I'm just thankful that like um, some of these schools just considered my story and my and my story kind of resonated with the emissions. That's pretty cool. Um, so how'd you hear about service school again? Was that just a, like a web search or did you hear about it um, through your, through your personal network in the military? Um, I was, uh, I was just looking at uh, Princeton's website for transfer students and it was on that website. They mentioned that they were partnering with uh, that link for, for services school. And so I just kind of followed that website and I was able to learn about service school that way. Really cool. I think this was back in 2018. Really cool. So what was it like getting to campus? Um, you know, you're definitely older than a lot of your classmates. So what did uh, what did that feel like? Um, you know, how did you, you know, kind of find your place on on campus when you were, uh, you know, a more experienced, more experienced person um, who had but seen a lot more of the world than many of your classmates? Yeah, so um, definitely was a challenge. So being being older than most of my uh, my classmates, but also like coming in as a transfer student because uh, when I was admitted, there were only twelve of us transfer students, and none of us knew anyone on campus. Um, and so yeah, that adjustment and um, the orientation process is quite different too. I think on the, a lot of the first year students get a lot more robust orientation process, and so we didn't have the same type of resources. We had access to the same type of resources, but we had to do a lot more learning on our own. 
Um, and, but like, um, yeah, so adjusting age wise, I guess like my, my experience in community college actually kind of prepared me pretty well for this because you, you see a lot of students who come from a variety of different ages here in community college. And so um, a lot of my friends from the International Students Club, for example, um, a lot of them were a mixture of different ages, somewhere like in their 30s, somewhere in their mid 20s. And I, I was like 19 years old at the time. And so like in a way, just kind of interacting with everybody. Um, despite our, our our different backgrounds, like we were like a, a family, and so I learned a lot about what it meant to be part of a community. And so, um, coming to Harvard, um, I just kind of had that kind of mentality, and I kind of viewed myself as the older student now. And so, um, I was looking for ways in which um I could find common ground with some students, find these things in interest, hobbies, um, things to talk about. My a lot of my sweetmates were actually from Europe, so I was able to talk about Europe and stuff like that too, and make friends with them, especially with those who traveled around and. It definitely was really easy to kind of make friends and living in Quincy House, it's the uh, the people's house at Harvard. And um, one of my uh, one of my fellow transfer friends, um, we didn't really know anyone, and so what we would do is we'd, we'd eat lunch together, but we'd just find different tables and sit with um with uh, just some, just sometimes just random people and just like just talk and get to know them. And we were able to make a lot of good friends that way. Yeah, that's really cool. And so, um, what kind of uh, activities do you take part in while you were at school? Yeah, so Harvard, um, I, I got involved with the Harvard Undergraduate Veterans Organization, if you will. And, um, and then, and I eventually took on some leadership roles with that as well. Uh, at first, I was at the outreach chair, and then I took over as the director of membership engagement. We started getting more veterans on campus, um, trying to build a community for the veterans and be a resource for them. That way, at a bare minimum, they had at least someone to come to. Um, I was also involved with the Alexander Hamilton Society. We kind of focused on like um, foreign um, foreign affairs and international relations type of uh, issues, and we'd have like um, different kind of speaker events, and we'd have like simulations and negotiation exercises and that kind of stuff. Um, I also was like a research assistant for the for the um, the negotiation task force at Harvard, that's in their Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. And then there's some clubs, some other clubs I was a part of. I actually accidentally joined the Hellenic Society, <laughs> so that's a it's a club um, where. Pretty much all the members are Greek or they're from from Greece. Um, and so um, that was really interesting. I was actually like at the student activities fair and I was looking for the Italian society. I was trying to join the Italian club, but I, I couldn't quite find it. And so I decided that well, I'm just going to go up to some random table and ask them if they happen to know where the Italian society was. And I was wearing a shirt I had bought in Crete. And so it's like Crete. And so I go up to the yeah. table and it's the Hellenic society. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> and so they asked me if I want to join. I was like, I guess. I mean, so I, so I asked them like what they did. And, and they would get together and hang out and go to Christmas, go out, grab me arrows. And it's something, yeah, so it's definitely a lot of fun. So I was just like, yeah, sure, why not? And so it's definitely a um, very fun club to be kind of a part of. And I still got friends who are in that club. Yes, I'm a, I'm actually a Greek American myself. So good on you for joining the Hellenic Club. So it's, uh, Greeks, are, Greeks are good people, man. So glad you had a good time with them. <laughs> Very beautiful country. Um, yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been myself. So I take it you, you pulled it to Hania in Crete. I think we pulled yeah, in. Yeah, it's just such a great spot. Yeah, you pulled in like fifteen times. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, we were, uh, we were there during the, during the winter. Unfortunately, so we didn't really get to get out to the beaches or anything like that. But um, yeah, it's just a great spot. So I take it you were there. You're, you got to see all the seasons there. Yep. Very beautiful. Yeah, good spot. stuff. Well, then what? Uh, so what attracted you to AmeriCorps? Uh, and have you enjoyed the experience there? Yeah, so um, in the AmeriCorps, I'm serving as a college completion coach with Michigan College Access Network. And so um, what kind of got me into this program a little bit was, um, uh, so I, I was working on an honors thesis, so you can explain why many military veterans kind of forego benefits and support programs available to them. 
And I was kind of taking like a behavioral economics approach to looking into it. So like looking at behavior biases that may be influencing veterans' decisions. And um, so as part of my outreach for my, my research, for my survey, I would reach out to community colleges um, that would have uh, veteran communities. And um, and I would go to, um, and so I'm making phone calls. And, and I saw like many of these community colleges I was reaching out to, didn't, they weren't really in touch with their veteran population. And I was looking um, for ways in which I could like um, better support them. I found with like my thesis, like many veterans are just unaware of benefits and support programs available to them. And some, uh, and in some communities, they just like don't, there are just barriers that kind of prevent them. Some physical, some, um, some socioeconomic barriers that kind of prevent them. But at the same time, just thinking back about my own experience in community college, um, as a first generation college student, I just, um, my, like neither of my parents went to university, but um, I didn't, so as a trying to apply for transfer, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and so, um, and so in, in hindsight, I should have like, you know, applied to a number of different universities and actually called their financial aid office and looked for outside scholarships, but I didn't really know how to go about doing that. But at, by this point in my life, I, I kind of have some idea now. And um, so working on this thesis kind of um, prevented me from sending for the LSAT and the GRE. And, and I was hoping to apply for law school for the next upcoming cycle. And so I decided to uh, take a gap year and serve in the AmeriCorps. I can give back to NMC students, give back to um, where I'm from, work with students here. And I've been working with first-generation, low-income students, students from minority backgrounds. I've been focusing on students from rural um, counties as well. And um, and so I've taken some my my spare time to study for for these exams and prepare for law school applications and do whatever I can to help some of these students here and provide them some additional support to when when they work on transfer applications too. That's really cool. And um, so you've already answered uh, the next question I have, um, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. So, so I want to know what's uh, what's up next for you after you're done with uh, with your AmeriCorps um, job. So are you, you said law school, and I was just curious as to where you're at in that process, and if you've got any any other ambitions um, with what you want to do um, if you're if you're working as a lawyer, what type of law you'd like to practice. Yeah, um, I'm still kind of figuring all that out myself. I did. Um, I just submitted uh, four applications so far, and um, and I got I got a few more I'm working on. Just um, doing my best to kind of craft my personal statement, and use. I'm actually paired up with an ambassador from Services School helping oh, me cool. out. So whenever I do get into a um, law school, I'll find out where I'll um, be giving back as well, and probably not with undergraduate admissions, but also with law school admissions, hopefully. And um, yeah, and as far as what I'm going to try and focus or specialize in, I definitely want to look into international law, um, maybe some comparative law. I heard that there's a nonprofit organization in D.C. called Lawyers Without Borders, and that sounded pretty interesting. And so I'm going to look more into um, seeing like some of the kind of work that they do. Um, and then I'm also like really interested in like a business law and like international development still. And so I'm kind of interested in seeing like the intersection of law, international uh, development and see in which ways I can kind of support people. But also like at the same time, like whenever I do like that kind of legal work, I would like to do some pro bono work on the side too. So working with some veterans uh, legal services and providing some additional support for uh, for um, incoming immigrants as well. So whatever I can do to help them out too. Oh, that's, that, that's really cool. So how is the uh, admissions process different for you applying to undergrad versus applying to law school? Um, yeah, it's definitely different. Oh, the application uh, process, yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely some similarities, but some differences. Um, major differences would be, um, well, for, for one, the uh, the standardized tests are much harder. <laughs> so definitely, yeah. That. Um, but also, like, um, your your personal statement is a little bit more more narrow, like, just, like, explain why you want to pursue law school, like, why law school? And so, um, so that's just kind of thinking about that and reflecting on my own personal experience and 
like looking for ways to kind of like reduce barriers for others and figuring out a way to kind of tell my story, but also tie that in was kind of tricky. Um, also like the, um, it's also like you're applying to a professional school. So you had to submit a resume as well. And so figuring out how to go about that. I have a lot of different work experiences and life experiences. So it was kind of hard for me to put all that on one resume, one page resume. So I had to come up with a couple of different versions, like a one page and a two page resume. And then deciding what kind of resume to submit was really difficult. But I feel like um, with law school applications, there's less components to it. So like for me, there's like personal statement, um, there's an optional like diversity statement on um, the resume and then addenda as well. And then because <clears throat> when I applied to Harvard, I also submitted like some additional stuff like um like an excerpt from like a chapter from the book that I started a long time ago. And then also right. like um some additional creative writing. I may have submitted a copy of a um one of the articles I wrote for the college newspaper. But as I mean that happened so many years ago. So I didn't want to submit that to any law schools for for now. Actually I don't think that I could really even do that anyways. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to continue writing? Like, were you thinking about doing like law review work or anything like that? Or have you continued uh, your writing uh, pursuits? Yeah, I, I really love to write. And so um, I definitely want to join some kind of um, some kind of legal journal for sure. Not sure what kind yet. So kind of exploring that. Um, it would be nice to look into international relations and that as well. And um, but I'm also interested in like uh, just doing some like creative writing, creative nonfiction writing as well. I may, um, I've, I've been exploring around some ideas. So maybe like... Um, Maybe like a collection of short stories of my travels in Spain or like um, kind of a little bit inspired by like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway and their their experiences and their travels in France. And, and but also like at the same time, get back into writing that one book I started a long time ago. It's like a, it's like a fantasy adventure book. I'm like five chapters into it. So I definitely get back into that, get back into writing. Um, I didn't really get to do much of that during the Navy. Kind of felt like um, I'm just too tired all the time and my creativity kind of died. But oh, on my travels and being at Harvard, I was just really inspired. And so definitely want to get back into that. That's cool. What's your uh, what's your favorite book? Um, that's a really good question. Kind of, I guess it kind of depends on the genre. But one of my favorite books would be, um, I would say I, I really enjoyed reading um, the stories told by uh, Khaled Hosseini. Yep. So he, he's the author of The Kai Runner. Um, but my favorite yep. book by him is actually his second book. And that's uh, A Thousand Splendid Sons. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I really liked that one. And then after reading that, I wrote, I, I read um, In the Mountains Echoed, which is the third book. And then I read The Kite Runner after that. And then I think he actually came out with some children's stories too. But um, then after, after wow. him, I really enjoyed Fitzgerald, Hemingway, some of their books as well. Yeah, did you get a chance to go to Paris at all when you were, when you were in Europe and go to some of their old haunts? I did. I um, So one of my, one of my all-time favorite movies is uh, Midnight in Paris. And so I actually retraced some of the steps of Hemingway and Fitzgerald. So I went to, um, there's, a, there's a cocktail bar over there called Harry's New York Bar. And it's like one of the oldest cocktail bars in Europe. And that, that was just really cool. Like some of the bartenders still wear like white lab coats and mixing like um, cocktails like they're concoctions and just really interesting and going to some of the piano bars and jazz clubs and it's really really nice nice experience I actually got befriended a local Parisian and he actually took me to some like non-touristy spots and I tried some like some uh, local cuisine that like um some of my friends who've been to France before like they even even know about like uh there's a, a dish called aligo and it's like uh it's kind of like mashed potatoes and cheese it takes many hours to prepare and like um as you eat it like you have to like twist your fork like pasta and then when you put it in your mouth like it just immediately melts it's really, really good oh wow Sounds, I love I love France. Incredible, cool. Um, well, as we wrap things up, um, I just like to uh, get some of your advice uh, you have for for people who may, might still be on active duty, thinking about getting out and going to college. 
Um, specifically, some advice you might have on how to prep for the SATs, um, applications, and how, how you're able to use your veterans' benefits. Yeah, um, well, for starters, um, veterans and, and uh, transitioning service members should definitely lean on their resources and um, people who like who've been through the process before and see like any any best practices tips that they have. Um, also, reaching out to you know other veterans who are at some of these these colleges that, that interest them and like um like with the GI Bill, like you can pretty much use that anywhere. And so exploring like uh, some schools that like and, like just some locations that really interest you where your family wants to go and. But um, you're preparing for the SAT or the ACT. Um, well, right now many schools don't really require those. So it may, depending on the individual circumstances, it may be good for them to take the test or not. Um, so I would like look into that too. Um, but yeah, I mean, just taking practice tests and finding some study guides. I've I've always used Kaplan, but I mean, like a lot of these, like Princeton Review and some other resources are really good too. Um, and then yeah, reaching out. Yeah, so I mean, Services School is a fantastic organization, and like pairing up. And then ambassadors like a lot of us, like it's like honestly, almost everyone I know, um, as far as um, veterans at Harvard College, I, I'm gonna say like almost everyone got through using using um, help from services school as well as the Warrior Scholar Project and um, tapping into uh, um, Student Veterans of America is also an awesome organization providing lots of support and um, yeah, just lots of resources that are out there to um to help veterans and, and having like um other people who've kind of been through the process kind of provide their their insight on like the personal statement and provide some feedback and just helping to kind of like consider like um you know the veteran's story and just being authentic and looking at hard skills and soft skills and many different things. Yeah, and and touching on your last point there about the veteran's story, um is is there any advice on how veterans can best tell their story on applications and, and things you did that were successful? Yeah. Um, at least what I try to do with whenever I worked on personal statements is like show some kind of movement with uh with my personal narrative. And so I'm like kind of talking about like where I came from, where I've gone and kind of like what I'm doing here in the present, but what I also hope to do in the future. Um, and also like having some like thinking about some like personal experiences for like anecdotes, uh, finding ways to kind of like um catch your catch your um readers' attention. Because I mean like in a way like like you want to you want to maintain your readers' attention throughout the uh the personal statement but you also want to kind of like convince them as to like why they want to have you on their campus and how like you would interact with other students and like staff members and faculty and um like also you know kind of thinking like how would you be as a, as a roommate and friend for some current students and so um yeah so you just want to be mindful of that aspect as well but also like um i mean everyone everyone has a story to tell and so like no one's life experience is going to be exactly the same as anyone else and so, um, so like think about like, your academic journey, like even if you didn't necessarily didn't come from like a like a stellar academic background, like who you are now is maybe quite different from that. You might be much more motivated, and like um, and so you just gotta like learn, learn how to or like figure out a way to demonstrate that motivation. And so like um, yeah, so especially with a lot, with a lot of this material, you want to do a lot more showing rather than telling. And so it's one thing to say that you do certain things it's different to show like through anecdotes and other um, a, um, aspects like on resume or something like what exactly you did to demonstrate that passion. So. Gotcha. And then as far as just like overcoming some things um, like, and I'm not talking about you, but maybe other veterans you've, you've talked to and also in your position at America Corps, um, how have people been able to overcome things like potentially like a low high school GPA or, or any other kind of um, setback they might have had to then succeed in in an undergraduate application and then later in school. Yeah. So um, lately, whenever I work with students, I kind of tell them that um, 
some like oftentimes, especially like with like with with some missions committees, is like um some of these committees will actually like like um they're interested in the student beyond the numbers, and so the GPA does paint a picture of a student um performance at one point in their life, but like that's in the past, you know, and so like their what what they did in high school may be different than what they're doing here at the community college. It's a different chapter of their life, and so um and so like think about different ways in which to kind of um, paint a picture of who you are. High school, academic record, test scores, um, they only paint only a part of the picture of who the student is. And so um, like uh, the student's life experiences, you know, carries a lot of weight as well. And sometimes like if they have a low GPA, like whenever I'm looking at student's track record or something in my college system, I'm looking to see whether or not they have something else going on on the side, like if they're working full-time, part-time, um, if they're coming from a distance. Because some of these students I work with are driving an hour away, so they can, wow. I think one is driving two hours roughly, and like um, so like looking at that too, you know, and so um, like there's a, a lot of different factors that can impact the students' performance, and so like I saw so identifying some of these barriers that may be preventing them from being really successful, and like looking for ways in which they could utilize some resources that are available to them, and so thinking like once they do get to a school that has these resources where they don't have to worry about all this stuff, like, I mean, they could potentially perform a lot better. And so, and, you know, um, students need to be forgiven of themselves, um, their test scores and past high school GPA. Like, I mean, it is, it is what it is, but um, it's, it doesn't define them though. You know, that's great. Well, look, I just really wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Your, your insights have been incredible. And um, I'm sure people are really going to, really going to benefit from, from hearing your words of wisdom. So, um, thanks again for uh, for the great work you you've done and are are continuing to do. Thanks so much for for having me, and I'm looking forward to continuing to serve service school. And I hope to um see you guys sometime in the near future. That's it for this episode. Join us next week, same time, same place, where we share more service to school stories. Service to School Stories is hosted by Sydney Mathis, the Director of Student Success, and produced by Amanda DeBias, the Director of Communication at Service to School. Service to School is a 501c3 nonprofit providing free college admission support to transitioning service members and veterans. Join us next time and follow us for more on all of your favorite social media platforms.